Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Well, good evening. How is it? In, how are things in Cape Town? Well, we're still here. <coughs> Some are, thank you. I, you know, we okay, South Africa, as you know, has been written off a thousand times, but we're still hanging in. Still hanging in, <laughs> Professor Knox. I don't know if you know that that uh, you know my mother was South African. Yeah, from Benoni. Benoni, correct? Yeah. And here, here's a, here's a kind of an ironic thing is so I have relatives in the Hewlett Sugar Company. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> And so, you know, obviously I'm the black sheep of that family, I guess. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a couple named, well, he, he's passed away, Ralph Hewlett and his wife, uh, Peter Hewlett, who live in Salt Rock, you know, just up the road from Durban. And they had the little yeah. Salt Rock Hotel. And as a kid, I went there. And so it's kind of funny that, you know, 30 years, 40 years later here, I'm this sort of anti-sugar guy. <laughs> I think it's, think it's very interesting. Well, it is a true honor, I tell you. It's a true honor okay. to, to have you on here, Professor Noakes. And we, you know, I, I kind of come to aware of your of your act, you know, your your activities. I guess maybe five years ago, and kind of watch with interest. And you know, as as I was going through this sort of, you know, kind of similar what you, you know, I know what you talked about your 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 Damascus moment, and you, you learn all that stuff, and then you kind of see what's going on, and you, and you watch the different players out there, and then, you know, obviously just shocked to see what you went through i mean you know with uh, with the whole silliness with this twitter i just thought was just beyond ludicrous but i mean it just turned into this big circus and you you know you you spent you know was it four years or so just battling with this stuff and, and i can tell you as someone who has gone through similar things and you know and i read the book lore of nutrition and it's an outstanding book that you and marika wrote and i hope a lot of people will We'll uh, we'll look at it and read it because not only is it just an interesting story, but it, you know this you know putting the science in there and, and it just kind of you know you just gave this overwhelming compelling argument that, that you made in the trial and and then and then something gets translated in the book. But one of the things under underappreciated is you know even though you ended up you know you're smiling you you, you finally that four years this monkey's off your back is that the tremendous stress it puts on the body because you know I you know for me you know I went through the same thing privately and it was just. It was depressing. I mean, it was it was life changing. It changed your relationship with your family. I mean, I ended up losing a home from this. I, you know, my, my my kids' relationship changed. I was, you know, made a pariah. I still, I still, even to this day, when people attack me, this where they go after. Even though, you know, not to go too much in my story, but I mean, I went through this stuff. I ended up with a state board saying, you're not, you know, we're gonna we're gonna let you surrender your license because you don't want to, you know, it was a he said she th- said thing with the hospital, yeah. Yeah. and I knew I couldn't win against the hospital, so I had to go get independently evaluated. The independent evaluation said for me, you're totally fine, you're completely competent to practice medicine. The state, you know, said you can please reapply again. So that's where I'm at. But but even though I, still I went through this process that beats you up, and a lot of physicians they go through this, end up committing suicide, which is amazingly high because it is so stressful. It is on par with losing a child. And so I'm, just, I'm glad to see you coming to the other end and still smiling. And I think that's the important thing. I think it's inspiring. But, uh, 
you know, you've got so much stuff out there to talk about. When, me, when Zach and I talked about getting getting you on here, we know everybody knows about the low carb stuff, and it's 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 you know that's where your passion's been for the last few years. But there's so much more behind that stuff. And you know, Zach and I are athletes. And we're like, he knows so much stuff about athletics. We want to get into that. And so this is I'm not, and I, hopefully this doesn't catch you off guard or anything. But I, I want to touch on one thing that you're that you're a proponent of is something called the central governor theory. You know, and I, yeah. and I was reading a little bit about this stuff with you know Archibald Hill back in 1924 proposing the same theory that you then re, re sort of resurfaced back in the 90s and it's still considered controversial but you know as someone who's you know i'm here trying like, constantly trying to push myself to the limit and i know absolutely certainly there are things going on in my brain that shut me down more often yeah. than not it doesn't seem to be physiology and so do you know i mean you know the the way i understand it is the overall thought is that you know there's something going on neurologically in the brain that is protecting us from you know, basically damage, some kind of anoxic injury, whether it happens to the, to the, to the heart or some other process versus the people say it's all peripheral things. And Zach, you know, it'll be interesting to talk about. So what's, what do you think is going on in the brain and are there things we can do to modulate that so we can kind of, we can kind of move that threshold up a little bit so we can get more performance? So let's go back to my story. I, I started researching in the 1980s and we originally had very limited equipment and when you published a paper in those days, you had to say that you'd shown the plateau in oxygen consumption. So you had to say that we'd pushed the person to a certain level. And so can you hear me still? I can hear you yeah, fine. Yeah, loud and clear. Oh, we just lost him. <laughs> I'm sorry. What happens is we can cut out on the five minutes. I've just had a Skype and it didn't cut out, but now this one cuts out and it's going to cut out usually every five minutes. Oh, do you know? If so that's... I have to find you back. Sorry, sorry, Zach. Do you know if that's just with the video or is that for? Because we can go. Yeah, I, yeah, if we don't need the video, let's cut the video. Okay, yeah, let's yeah, do that. Let's do that. Yeah, we want to get the info. Yeah. Can everyone hear each other on audio? Yeah, yeah I can hear. Fantastic. Okay. Okay, we're That's good really now. That's a good idea because the previous person I spoke to, we didn't have the video. Okay, perfect. Okay, so let's start again. So when I started my research in the exercise sciences in the 1980s, early 1980s, we, we had very limited equipment. And we were meant to be able to show that you had this plateau in oxygen consumption. So if you tested a person, you had to show that although the oxygen consumption rose initially with increasing work rate, a point was reached where it no longer rose, and that meant the plateau phenomenon, and people, people had run out of oxygen. And we couldn't show it. We couldn't show this. And so if you had to publish a paper in those days, you had to be able to say that, that we found the plateau, but we never found it, so we had to lie. We either lied and said we found or we didn't. We, so we said, well, we can't lie because we didn't show it. So... We would publish these papers, and eventually I decided, well, it must be wrong. It can't be the muscles running out of oxygen. Something else is happening. And then in 1996, I was asked to give the, the premier lecture at the ACSM, the J.B. Wolf lecture. And because I was a generalist, I didn't know quite what to speak about. So I decided that I would look at the false beliefs in, in the exercise sciences. And what struck me about the idea that the periphery regulates exercise performance was that if that is the case, we'd have many deaths from people dying when they're climbing Mount Everest. 
or when they were exercising in the heat. And I was exercising people with heart disease at the time, and they weren't dying. So I thought, you know, there must be something that's protecting them. And so I pre pre proposed then that the brain was regulating the, the performance in some way to protect the body. And that was an absolutely novel idea. And I didn't know how it was working at all. I had no concept. The, the paper which I then published in the Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise was severely criticized by some guys from, I can't remember which state they were from. But they, uh, they forced me to go back to read what Hill had said. And Hill said that it was because there was an inadequate oxygen supply to the heart that's what was protecting the body. So the brain would detect that there was too little oxygen getting to the heart, and the brain would say, okay, we must stop, you must reduce your activity. And it, he said that the brain reduced the output of the heart. And I knew that wouldn't be the way it would work. The brain would reduce the output of the muscles, and then the heart would be protected in a, in a, in a, in a protected way, in that way. And so that was the paper we eventually came up with. And then in, in 2004, we wrote a series of articles for the British Journal of Sports Medicine in which we explained all the evidence that the brain had to be in control. And we didn't know how it was working, but we said it was receiving feedback from the periphery so that no organ would be damaged. And that was where we were, the early model. And, and some of the evidence for that is that so many things can act in the brain and make you perform better. For example, all the drugs that act, or if you know how far you've got to run, or if you run on the course before, or if you've got competitors present, all these things impact on performance, and they can only act through the brain. So that was kind of the way we, we wrote it, and, and we could prove it. You can prove it very easily by just seeing how much of your muscle mass are you able to activate during maximal exercise, and you never, ever, ever recruit 100%. So there's always reserve. And that's one of the best evidence that this model is correct. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, fascinating. I just wonder, you know, if we know, you know, physiologically exactly what's going on in the brain, what, what chemicals are telling the brain that, hey, it's time to shut down, what receptors are being used. But, you know, interestingly, you know, I've read at least theoretically, you know, looking at maximum human velocity based on, you know, biomechanics that humans should be able to run 40 miles per hour. And, you know, we look at guys like Usain Bolt, the top out around 28 miles per hour. So it's kind of interesting that we, we, we certainly cannot access everything our body could do, you know, and there, there's some, some degree of self-preservation. Now, there are people that, that criticize this theory and say there have been examples of different athletes that have, that have caused themselves damaged. A damage, you know, after running. I mean, do you have any any sort of thought on on that criticism? Sorry, I, it cut out. Can you just repeat that again? I, I heard that you said Usain Bolt should be able to run faster. Right. So, I mean, based on projections of, of biomechanics, Usain Bolt should be able to, you know, or not Usain Bolt, but a human should be able to run up to 40 miles an hour based on our biomechanics, and we obviously don't do that. And so, there's something protecting us or preventing us from doing that. Uh, there, you know, the critics of the central governor theory will point to, to uh, uh, examples of people that supposedly in all out, uh, you know, exertion activities have damaged themselves. And there's there's mm -hmm. there's evidence that and what what are your thoughts on that sort of uh, line of reasoning for criticism of that? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Because so one of the right recent papers we published is, in fact, a series of five or six. And done by my student, Andreas Venhorst, who was a world-class triathlete. And he came to Cape Town. So he, 
he, he was a professional triathlete, a medical doctor, a scientist, and he came to Cape Town because he wanted to study further on the central governor model because he had this experience. He would go to races and he would always rank himself about fifth or sixth. So he'd look at the guys who were racing him and he'd say, this guy's the world champion, this is the Olympic champion, I can't beat them, I can come fifth today. And he, and he would always come fifth. And one day he projected he was going to come fifth. And of course, he, towards the end of the race in the run, he suddenly discovered he was in fourth place. Then he was in third place. And then all of a sudden he was in first place with 10 Ks to go. He said it was the easiest race he ever had. He reached with 10 Ks to go and he just sprinted home and he didn't feel any pain or discomfort at all. And he said, I want to understand how was my brain able to do away with all the discomfort? And so he did some fabulous studies for his PhD, which he's just been awarded. And these papers are published in Sports Medicine and in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And he took the pain model of what happens when you cope with pain. And I'm still not fully conversant and understand it completely. But what he did was he took athletes, cyclists in the laboratory, and he would race two guys off against each other who were equally their performances were equal. And he would study their mentation and their emotions and their physiology as the one went ahead of the other. And as soon as the one went ahead of the other, the person who was falling behind, his whole physiology would change and he would start battling with this quitting idea of quitting. And his emotion would change and they'd become less emotionally stable. And the physiology would change and the cortisol would start to rise. And it was fun and amazing. So the winning athlete, even though he was cycling much harder, his emotion was better. He felt less discomfort and he had no desire to quit. Whereas the other guy who's cycling behind him now, all those things would change. And, but the key was the linking between the emotion and the physiology. And he de we've developed a model of how it all changes. And it's very similar to, to the emotion that people go through when they have pain. For example, you, you probably know this, but in the First World War, they stopped giving morphine to patients coming in from the, who'd got these horrendous wounds because they'd found that 50%, people, legs blown off, arms blown off, they didn't need morphine. And they had to ask them, do you have any pain? And some of them said, no, I've got no pain. So well, don't look at your limbs because you might get pain once you've looked at your limbs. And so, so that, that, that was the model we're beginning to, to use, that there is, it's what you feel about the performance and the fact that you don't start to think about quitting, the, the quitting, the ending. Once you start thinking like that, then your biology is completely gone. So, so those are the higher levels of intellect that come in and allow you to continue and Explain to me why most of the best athletes you see, they, they enjoy what they're doing and they're laughing and smiling when they're doing it. And that fits perfectly with this model. Yeah, you know, the, the most clear experience I've had that kind of matches what you've just been saying is was the, the first time I ever did uh, an ultramarathon on a track. And it was back in 2013. Yeah. And I went into that race with this kind of goal of to chase the American record for a hundred miles. And I was on pace all day long. And I think I was maybe I'm trying to remember like maybe 10 to 15 minutes ahead at one point. 
Uh, and then I got to somewhere around around mile 88, 89, somewhere pretty close to like that 90% range of, of completion. Uh, and I remember looking in, looking at my splits and kind of trying to calculate in my head like what I had to do to make sure I finished under the, the, the American record. And I remember thinking, well, if I keep going this exact same pace, and I could easily calculate it because it's on a 400 meter track mm -hmm. and you get all this feedback. And I was like, if I keep going this exact same pace, I'll break it by like seven minutes. So I convinced myself right there that I could maintain that pace I was doing, but not a second per lap faster. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. the funny thing then is the race director actually came up to me just after 90 miles, probably around 90.5 miles or so, and said, uh, you know, if you keep going when you hit 100 miles, then you'll probably actually also get this world record for distance run in 12 hours. And I, I didn't even know that record existed going into the event. And as, <laughs> as soon as he told me that, I was running like two, three seconds per lap faster after that. So yeah. it was almost like my mind shifted from that goal that I'd been fixated on all day long of, you know, breaking this American record to now all of a sudden having a different motivator, or a different kind of objective. And uh, I went from, you know, convinced I wasn't going to be able to go a second per lap faster, running two, three, sometimes four seconds per lap faster than I had been. And then I ended up breaking the American record by a little over 12 minutes. So I sped up from what I had thought and then also getting that 12 hour world record. So it's like, it's really a powerful thing when you can kind of, you know, con you know, change your mindset, yeah. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's a lovely story. I remember a very similar story when I forget who it was, it was a lady who was racing a five kilometer race. And with the last lap, she was lying fifth. And then all of a sudden, she looked up at the time and she said, you know, if I do the final lap in however many seconds it is, I could actually qualify for the Olympics. And she went and did it and she won the race. Now, <laughs> if, she hadn't, if she hadn't thought that at that time, she wouldn't, of course, have qualified. So that's it. You know, we accept the performance and we convince ourselves that that's what we can do. And then and we do it. I remember a guy who set a world record for 24 hours paddling. And he, he said, all I have to do is, I don't know how many, it, it let's say a kilometer every 10 minutes or something or five minutes or something. And he, when he finished, he said, you know, if I'd started with a different goal, I would have been able to do it. Mm. <laughs> if I started with a goal of, of another 10 seconds off each kilometer, I would have done it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Professor, it's kind of interesting because, you know, what and I think you did some rowing in your younger days. So you understand yes. there it can be very challenging physiologically. But, you know, my focus has been on the shorter distance. I've got some records in sprint type distances. And right now I'm trying to pursue this thousand meter world record for my for my age group. And so yeah. but I find and this is something we see, you know, again, leaving the distance stuff out of there that, that in short activities, weightlifting and stuff like that, we see arousal states have a tremendous uh, impact on uh you know performance and so there's certain levels of arousal that go with certain types of activities and so again that's another you know brain related uh modulation on performance which i think is is you know maybe also ties into this this sort of uh overall concept about several central governor yeah i mean i just i just laugh when i think people don't think the brain's in charge i mean how do you recruit muscles <laughs> and the problem for av hill was that he wasn't a neuroscientist and nor am i a neuroscientist but but my my strength was I can I see the, all the systems working together, and then I can see well, gosh, the brain has to be in charge. But I, I can't tell you exactly how the system works. But we'll we'll get there in time. By the way, we one of my students developed a, 
a system for cycling within an fMRI so that we have data of brain changes during cycling in an fMRI and that paper should be coming out quite soon. So we've been able to measure actually which parts of the brain become active and uh, not that it's going to help us a great deal but at least we, we, we've moved the field a bit forward to be able to show that there are certain areas which become inhibited and others become more active and they may well link so the limbic system becomes active and that may well be linked to the emotions and so on and that might well be a major factor determining how aroused you are that was a good word you used yeah i mean it's this is fascinating stuff you know as you as you get there pushing limit and one and this is one thing that you know we call this podcast the human performance outliers but i think you know and this is, I think, a recurrent theme, and maybe perhaps in your career and your in your thinking is, you know, you you look at these examples that are so out outside of the norm. You know, you find the black swans, you find the guys that are breaking world records, or doing something that's so outside the norms of of normal physiology. Then the theories start to break apart. You know, it's like if you drive a car really slow, you don't see problems, but when you go really really fast. That's when the that's when the, the the rattles show up. That's when the things start to break, and then you can kind of kind of say, "Hey, man, this is where, you know, this is where things, you know, kind of show us where the problems are." And I think that's been something that, you know, you you've shown throughout your career. You look at the you look at the look at the big picture and say, "Wait a minute, this doesn't match," and mm. and now we've got to figure out why. And so we you know we had on on our show a few weeks back a guy named Charles Washington. Now Charles is another guy who you know eats a carnivore diet. He doesn't eat any carbohydrates. He's been doing doing it for ten years now. He's a marathon runner. He's doing very well as a, as a marathon runner. But what he told Zach and I is he doesn't even drink water. I mean he just mm. runs. And mm. I know you had that. You know, I know you you delved into hyponatremia and you know you had the book Waterlog. Can you talk a little bit about electrolytes, fluid. You know what what we know, what we don't know. What's myth? What is what's out there? Yeah. So I was fortunate that I ran my first marathon in 1972. And in that era, we were advised not to drink during marathons. And in fact, I was one of the first people in South Africa, at least, to say, hold it, this is ridiculous. You must allow us to drink. And by 1981, the, the races in South Africa changed so much that you could get a drink every mile. So we went from a 26-mile race where you, where you drank maybe once or twice to now people were allowed to drink every mile. And the first case of problems arose in the 1981 Comrades Marathon, which is 56 miles. And a lady developed this hyponatremia or low sodium, and she was unconscious at the finish. And she was unconscious for four days. And everyone, of course, said it's dehydration. She didn't drink enough, etc. And she wrote to me a few weeks later and asked what had happened. And I said, I've no idea. And within two or three years, I'd worked out that she must have overdrunk. And then we actually probed it and published a paper in 1991 in the Journal of Applied Physiology, proving absolutely that people who developed this condition had been overdrinking. And I warned in that time, in 19, the early 1990s, I said the first person who will die in a marathon from overdrinking will be a female runner in the United States of America. She'll run the race in five and a half hours and she'll be told to that she must drink in ahead of thirst. And it happened in the Valley of the, I think it's Valley of the Giants Marathon in, in California. That's when it happened, 1993. And we've had many deaths since then. And the problem was that the sports drink industry came along in the mid-1980s and they realized that they, they would use runners to promote over-drinking for everyone. So if you went to a gym and you sweated a single sweat 
a single drop of sweat, that would kill you because you're dehydrated now and you didn't drink enough. Because they knew their market wasn't with marathon runners, it was with the average athlete exercising in the gym. So they overpromoted this idea that dehydration will kill you. And as a consequence, people died from over drinking during marathon races. So I wrote that book and it I researched all the evidence and there's no evidence that you really need electrolytes. Your, the sodium that you lose during a marathon in your sweat or in your urine is because you, you're, you've got an excess anyway and you're trying to excrete it. And it's never been possible to, to produce a sodium deficit in free living humans unless you put them on a zero sodium diet, which no one can eat because it just tastes too terrible. So, so that's the reality. I, the evidence is clear that you drink to thirst and you, you add salt if you like, but you don't need to. And your, your food, as soon as you eat the food, you'll replace any minor deficits that you might have developed during the race. What, I mean, was there evidence to the contrary of the showing that people were dying of dehydration during athletic performance? Was that ever shown to be an issue that, that no. prompted people to say we had to drink all this stuff? No, the, the problem was that there were two South Africans who, in fact, offered me a job on the South African mines. And they were, the problem, as you'll know, in the mines is as you go deep, it gets very hot. And the South African mines are the deepest in the world. They go down to four kilometers. And the temperature of the rock face is 50 degrees centigrade. And so heat stroke was a major problem. And these two guys came along and they solved the heat stroke problem by cooling the mine. That was what they basically did. And it wasn't what they did to the athletes. Or they did, sorry, they did pre-acclimatize them, which was also very important. But the main effect was to cool the mines. But then they went and did a study of runners. And by chance, they measured their rectal temperatures after the race and how much weight they'd lost. And they found a relationship. And the fastest, well, they didn't report this, but the fastest runners lost the most weight and had the highest temperatures. So they said that's dangerous. What they should have said is the fastest runners actually lost the most weight and won the races. So therefore, to be a good marathon runner, you must be able to get dehydrated and get hot. But they didn't draw that conclusion. They said, gosh, if you get dehydrated, you're going to die from heat stroke. And that's where it started, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that was the thing that Charles was saying is because, you know, a lot of these top marathon runners, they, they don't drink, take in much water and they end up being, you know, three, four, five kilos lighter by the end of the race. And so they're just not carrying as much mass. And so they're able to negative split down the stretch. Uh, yeah. And so it may be an advantage to be lighter. You know, obviously carrying, you're moving less weight, your strength to weight ratio goes up, you know, ultimately better performance and, and no real evidence saying it's it's actually harmful for the body, which is kind of an interesting, it, it certainly goes counter to the, to the to yeah. sort of the Gatorade mantra. Exactly. And my colleagues and I, not me directly, but my colleagues from Aberdeen measured uh, Haile Gebri Selassie when he said he ran a 206 marathon, I think it was, what might have been fast, but I think he was a 205, 206 marathoner. And he lost five kilograms, mm -hmm. which was 10% mm -hmm. of his body weight. And he sped up, he sped up the last two Ks. So please tell me that he, he would have gone faster if he drank more. No, it's not true. Yeah, that's the we brought that one up on our Charles Washington episode too, and it was uh, we were I think I, I can't remember if we if I had remembered who it was. But I, th I think was that at the New York Marathon that he did that? Do you remember? No, I think it was it was probably the 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 German one, the Berlin Marathon. Berlin, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I remember that story, and you know, you you think about that when because I mean, he's you, people think of, like losing that much water weight in a race and they're you know they you put on top of that I mean, he's not a big person either like 
Hill Gebert last exactly. season, maybe 130 pounds at his heaviest. So like losing <laughs> 10 plus pounds of water weight is, you know, a, a pretty big drop. And yeah, when he, with him speeding up over the course, I think was pretty eye opening. And if, if it's along the lines that Sean was saying too, it's like, let's look at like, well, what, what's, what's working with this guy that instead of saying like, yo, he lost that much water weight. Yeah. What, what is he going to run a, like a 203 instead if he has an extra <laughs> bottle of water and it's, it's you're grasping at straws at that point um but it's really interesting yeah. you know i had a, a question with that too and um was wondering like what, what your thoughts are on it and um because i th- i think you know with when you're looking at the marathon distance even someone who's in the middle of the back of the pack they're not going to be out there long enough i think to like like you said really need to be replacing a lot of electrolytes uh unless they're you know over drinking drinking past thirst or avoiding salts heavily the days leading in um what what if anything changes when we start getting into like these extreme endurance events uh like you know ironman triathlon or like 100 mile races uh where you're going to be out there for you know sometimes like 17 18 sometimes 24 hours at a time and sometimes they're in extreme environments too where the temperatures are getting up into like the 100 degree temperature range do you think like is it still a more of a drink to thirst and try to keep your body cool or is that a kind of a scenario in which bringing in some exogenous electrolytes or sodium is also probably uh, a smart move as well yeah, I think that you make a very good point, you know, that like skin temperature is terribly important. And so if you can keep your skin temperature down, that's that's important. But you can't do that by drinking. But you could do it, as you know, because you'll know this from that. If you put water or ice on your skin, that will help you more than putting the water in your mm-hmm. in your tummy, so to speak. So I think that we have to work out what really affects you. And, and the heat, it's the humidity and the direct sun and the, the your skin temperature that that slows you down it's not dehydration per se so and what happens in the longer races of course you run during the day and it gets hot as you experienced and so you're going to slow down and that that's kind of protective as well so the the brain says hold it it's too hot for you to run six minutes a mile now you've got to slow down to seven minutes a mile under these conditions and then when it gets cooler you can speed up again so so the brain is there to make sure you don't get into trouble the problem becomes when when people are running in the in the heat and they're slowing down and then they say, oh, gosh, I'm slowing down because I'm dehydrated and they overdrink. And that's when you get the problem of overhydration becoming more more likely. Again, I don't believe that you will run out of any electrolytes, that your balance will be affected by by running because you're going to get food and, and you will replace those electrolytes uh, along the way. So... And so there's never been any evidence that that athletes become electrolyte deficient in in running races. However, there is evidence that some people do benefit by taking salt. They run fast and they'll tell you they run faster. And that's fantastic. You know, for the individual, do what do what you find works. So I would never tell an athlete not to take electrolytes during a marathon if they had found that it helps them. But Mm -hmm. on the on the on the side of biology, we don't know why that should work because it's not a deficiency. But, you know, the, I could extend that argument. Taking glucose during, if you're fat adapted particularly, you don't really need glucose, but your brain needs it as a stimulant. It acts like a drug. Mm-hmm. It might be working as a drug. It's the salt may be working as a drug. 
if you take it and put it on your mouth. It may lift your mood and help you perform. Yeah, we so, see that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Professor. Yeah, so, so, so that's my point. I would never, I, ne I, I believe that the, that the people like yourself, Zach, who go out there and run five or six hours a day, I mean, you're the real, you're at the front of, of finding out what happens. We can't recreate that in the laboratory. We, I can't get you to run 24 hours in the laboratory. So you've got to go out and do it from yourself. And what you tell me, I will listen to. And if I can't explain it bi biologically, I'll say, well, the biology, we just don't understand. I will, I'll never tell an athlete they're completely wrong if they found something that works for them. If I can't explain it biologically, that's my problem. It's not the athlete's problem. You believe the athlete first, and then you try and find out why it works for that athlete. Yeah, that that's a that's a that's a big uh, pill for people to swallow. They they believe it goes the other way around that you you know you can't do things until the science proves it. And so I think that's just uh, you know it's backwards. It's not how science is supposed to work. But just you know continuing on this this topic, you know we talk about you know much of this focus has been on distance running, but there there does seem some to be some efficacy. Uh, at least I've seen for increasing water for athletic performance in the shorter range stuff, maybe the, maybe the sprints, maybe the weightlifting stuff, where you have increases in intravascular volume, increases in perhaps muscle water. Um, do you have any 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 knowledge as regard to that? I know something called you know salt loading, where you'll take some salt in prior to a, a bout of vigorous activity, has been seen to be efficacious for potentially those reasons. Any 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 knowledge on that, Professor Knox? No, I don't, because, you know, having looked at the biology, I, and I give it all in waterlogged, it's absolutely clear that you can't produce a sodium deficit. And that this, the studies were done uh, during the Second World War by American scientists showing that if you put people in a heat chamber and you cut their, their salt intake to two grams a day, they were still fine. They could exercise six hours a day on two grams of, and they just stopped passing salt in their urine and sweat. So... So the body is incredibly able to conserve sodium. So on that ground, I'd say, well, no, how could it possibly help? But again, my point is, if people find out it works and they do it and uh, show the results, then I must say, well, we just don't understand it. There are studies of people salt loading and running better in the laboratory. So again, my point is, we don't fully understand the mechanisms. Yeah, and again, I think, you know, I'm looking at short-term transient effects in intravascular volume that may only last for, you know, minutes rather than, than you know, mm -hmm. four or five hours, what we're talking about. So it may be just a totally different, you know, physiologic time frame that, that, that you can have a short transient increase in volume based on, you know, fluid and, and electrolyte loading. Exactly. So there might be something exactly. there. And the central governor says that it's receiving all this information from all parts of the body. And if you increase the vascular volume, that will be a different signal coming to the brain. And the brain say, well, okay, today you've got a larger vascular volume. You can do more exercise. Who knows? It's, it's entirely possible. By the way, I didn't answer your one question was, you know, what, why can't Usain Bolt run faster? And the answer is, I think, because he would just rupture his, his biceps femoris. Uh, he would just, his hamstrings would just rupture. I think that's the weakness in sprinting is that, You've got to slow down your, your leg as it comes through, and you need a massively powerful bi uh, hamstrings. And if your hamstrings, that's what the body will say, hold on, if you go any faster, you're going to rupture your hamstrings. A.V. Hill said that. He said there must be a limit to, to muscle strength, that ultimately you'll just rupture muscles or bones if you, if you run too fast. Uh, that's amazing. So let's, 
you know, the, the, Professor Nox, you know, of all, you know, of all the things you talk about, you know, there's so much fascinating, uh, you know, just theory and data and information out there. But, you know, the one thing that inspired me the most, and it's not even a, you know, a scientific theory, it's just, well, it's when you start talking about, you know, the wisdom of the crowds, you know, and I think that for me has been, you know, you know, if we look back at, you know, you know, you can look look back at physicians through history, you know, Osler and some of the other, you know, they they they, they observe people, and mm-hmm. and then they made their conclusions based on that, and and that that yeah. sort of power of observation seems to have gone away. And you know, you look at guys like Weston A. Price who went around the world, you know, studying these various tribes, and you know, and then I was heavily criticized for saying I had the audacity to look at people on a Facebook group and and, and start to make some conclusions based on that, or at least make some observations. Yeah. I think today with you know, even though there's all kinds of problems with social media, we all know that there's, you know, idiots on there, that there's, there's people that are just distracting. There is a potential goldmine of data that can be mined and observed, just like Western A, Western A. Price did it, but in a, you know, in, in a computer, computer technological world. And I think that is something that, that, that people sort of dismiss, you know, again, a bunch of anecdotes, you know, we can't do anything, but I think you can, I think it's possible. And I think that's what's happening or is going to continue to happen can you touch can you expand a little more on your 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 statement wisdom in the crowds yeah you know uh, as you were speaking sean i was thinking about my training and the the physicians we really respected in our training were the ones who could make a diagnosis at the bedside from the evidence of the patient brought it wasn't based on all sorts of other examinations and x-rays and of course x-rays were were there but we didn't have all this other technology and these guys were brilliant. I mean, they could listen to the heart and tell you exactly which valve was affected and how serious the condition was, because that's all they had. And that was what medicine was based on. And we used to complain, you know, that, that in other countries there was so much special investigations that the physicians weren't being trained to observe the patient and learn the history from the patient and make the diagnosis on the basis of all that information. And I think that's what we've lost. And medicine has now just become you make a diagnosis with all these special investigations and then you prescribe the pharmaceutical drugs and, and that, they don't work. That's, that's the problem, as you know. So what struck me about the wisdom of the crowds is, is that what, what works is ultimately what rises to the top. When enough people discover something that works and keep repeating it on social media, that's what rises to the top. And the things that don't work are, are lost. So when I tell young students, medical students nowadays, I say there was medicine before social media and there's medical practice after social media. And the two are totally different. And you as a practicing physician better understand that. Because before the social media, there was the power of the anointed. Because no one knew what worked and you went to the doctor and whatever that doctor said you had to accept because you had no other option there was really no other information but after social media things are going to change dramatically and the patient will come to you and listen to you and say okay that's what you're telling me but i'll go on to social media and find out what other people say and they will eventually discover what works and if you prescribing drugs that don't work or make them sick or diets that don't work they're going to find that out, and unfortunately, they're just going to move on to a doctor who can give them the advice that, that is more compatible with what they're reading on social media. So, so that's how I see it, and I think it's, it's a, great, a great change because finally 
people, there's, it's the democratization of medicine. And I, I tweeted the other day, you would have seen it because it, it took a lot of interest. I was given a courtesy car, a taxi driver was driving me and he was quite a big guy still. And he suddenly said to me, he said, you know, doc, I lost 90 kilograms. That's 180 pounds, 200 pounds. And I said, gosh, how did you? No, I just Googled uh, Banting diet. And then I saw your name and I bought your book and I followed what it said. And I realized I was eating too much sugar. I was eating too many cereals and grains. I realized I didn't have to fear fat. And I just took some discipline and I lost 90 kilograms. No doctors, no dietitians, no one. He did it by himself. And, and there you go. Now, if he'd been to a dietitian in South Africa, she would have said, but you're eating not enough fat. Sorry, you're eating too much fat. You got to cut the fat and eat more carbohydrates, and he would have just got fatter. But he worked out that this was the way to go, and that—that's what's going to happen. Now he will influence thousands of people because they've seen that he's lost 90 kilograms, and they say, "How did you do it?" Well, it's simple. I did the X, Y, and Z. So that's that's how the social media is changing everything. Yeah, you know the other interesting thing that I that I see with too like with the rise of social media over the last decade or so, and like this like unlimited access to the information, data, and other people's processes and stuff too is, you know, we've been prescribing the wrong nutrition for long enough where a lot of these people who are kind of really legitimately searching for answers, they've gone through the gauntlet of stuff that doesn't work already. So like. Mm. You know, they, they they go and are told, well, you know, you got to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grain, you know, moderate the amount of fat, definitely don't eat as much or much cholesterol, saturated fat, and they get that message like, yeah, we've tried that and I just got fatter and sicker or, you know, I've had, you know, these massive swings in weight and energy and things like that. And so they already kind of know in the back of their mind that that's not going to work for them and then when you they see the the like the guy like the taxi driver that you ex described uh they see that and they're like okay that's that's something that actually did work it's not like i'm not going to try to do the same thing over again that i already know didn't work yeah that's a very good point yeah absolutely which is something i hadn't really thought about that it's prior experience and that that was my experience fortunately you know i'd been eating this diet for 33 years and it gave me type 2 diabetes and then I realized my dad had had type 2 diabetes for 10 years and died. So I realized I've got 10 years to sort this thing out. Well, I'm going to be dead as well. And uh, obviously, as you said, I realized what I'd been doing before. It didn't work. So continuing to do the same thing that had caused me the problem didn't seem a very good idea. And the idea of changing completely and doing the exact opposite seemed logical. And, of course, it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, another another conversation I'll have from time to time when I'm – when I'm talking to people about kind of using, you know, a, a high fat or higher fat approach to endurance athletes, is uh, the, the, the question that ultimately usually comes up, especially if I'm talking to, you know, a coach or someone who's worked with, with, uh, you know, elite athletes is that, you know, like, well, why are all the gold medalists and record holders and stuff? Why are they all following a high carbohydrate diet? If that's not the, you know, the formula for success. And, you know, my my response to that is um, is always like I don't think you're digging in deep enough because mm. like when I look at that and when I look at a gold medalist or any medalist at the Olympics or anything like that, like that I see someone who is uh, just an incredibly robust human being first of all and then second mm. of all it's mm. 
what I see is us is we're identifying people who have survived that program because you Mm. take any of these these athletes and they've been told since probably middle school you know eat high carbs eat this eat that Mm. so they just they do that because that's what they're told to do and then it it works for them long enough to get through their 30s and maybe even early 40s before it's time for them Mm. to retire um, but what we don't pay attention to are those people that had that equivalent skill set. They could be, they have the, the genetic gifts and the drive and the work ethic to potentially become an Olympian or an Olympic medalist, but they fall by the wayside somewhere along the way because, you know, things break down, things, things don't work mm-hmm. for them in that traditional mold. And those are the folks I think we should be focusing on. Like what happens if we took that guy or gal who at age 28 burnt out or, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, fell off the wayside and, and changed their nutrition. Do, do they rise to the top eventually? And, um, and, and, you know, and that's still only dealing with kind of the tip of the spear. Cause then I'll also kind of extrapolate out. It's like, you know, that's, that, that may be a good program for, you know, someone who's at that very kind of tip of performance. But what about the athlete that comes to me and is 20 pounds overweight or is pre-diabetic type two diabetic? Do I, do I say like, yeah, you know, drink the Gatorade or, you know, do the, that quote unquote healthy, high carbohydrate approach when, you know, that's just not worked for them in the past. Mm. No, I think that's brilliant. What you just said that I was interesting. I was, I was wondering how you're going to argue your way out of that. And I, <laughs> I, found, <laughs> I found your answer very compelling. And, you know, I read daily reach. I receive emails and today's email chap who's run the Comrades Marathon 11 times on a high-carb diet. He's now 62, and this was when he was a youngster. He was getting slower, so he stopped for 10 years, and then he started again 10 years later, and, of course, he read the high-carb story, so he got back on the high-carbs, and he was running terribly, and then eventually decided to try the low-carb diet, and all of a sudden, boops, his performances shot up again, and he's now running cross country. Now this is a guy running 90 kilometer races and he's now running cross country at national level. And he said, everyone looked at him and said, so what happened? What drug did you discover? <laughs> <laughs> but he said the remarkable thing is that at 62, his performance had improved so dramatically, but people look at him and there are two types. The one said, okay, whatever you did, I'm doing, I'm going on the diet. And the others are still skeptical. No, it can't be the diet that made you so much faster. (laughs) That's what makes me laugh is this. It is so obvious. And I just get those everyday messages from older people that their performances are starting to improve again as they lose the weight and they correct the type 2 diabetes or the insulin resistance and their running returns again to them. Professor, no, I mean, there's something called anabolic resistance as well that occurs as we get older and, you know, our muscles resist being trained or, or actually growing. And I think that's tied directly into insulin resistance. So I think that phenomenon is occurring as you as you correct the underlying metabolic disease for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, that's so we everybody's talking about weight loss and, and, you know, there's a little bit quite a bit of interest in type 2 diabetes right now. But what I'm seeing you know, anecdotally and, and, and seen on, on very large scales now is just dramatic reversals of a number of different disease mm-hmm. conditions, including autoimmune diseases and digestive diseases and, you know, joint problems and stuff like that. And so I think, the, you know, the, the, the potential 
for you know ending massive amounts of suffering just by diet is, is is not even near potentially being realized by figuring out how to how to how to fix this. And I think when we go back, you know, I know Professor Schofield out of out of New, you know in, in Auckland, New Zealand, is you know he proposed this mm-hmm. unifying theory of disease and, and basically pointing to hyperinsulinemia being a big problem. And I certainly think there's something there. Maybe we don't have the whole picture yet, but it's something that I, I think we have to aggressively explore. explore. Um, we had Mickey Bendor, who is a uh, anthropologist, on a few weeks ago. Very fascinating, uh, you know. Yeah. Very fascinating, uh, you know, looking at the evolution of, of of humanity. And you know, as as you know, South Africa was definitely a hotbed of evolutionary activity there. And there's some you know different thoughts on what might have happened there. But how can evolution inform us as to what we're supposed to eat today? You know, Mickey Bendor said, you know, at least Homo erectus was probably living mostly on, you know, big, large megafaunal animals like elephants, their diet probably was, uh, you know, something like 60% fat, 35, 40% protein in that range. What are your thoughts on, on that, on what we, what we evolved as, as humans, and then how does that ultimately impact our health long-term? Well, I, I express that in quite a lot in, in law of nutrition and quote Mickey extensively. And so I'm kind of bought into his theory, but then again, I'm from, that area my parents are from, from the north of England. And the north of England was under ice until 10,000 years ago. So if you were living there, where were you getting your food from? You certainly weren't growing strawberries and cereals and grains. You, we were eating mammoths. And, and then when we started eating animals, it was pork probably and lamb. And that's the foods that I really like. So I'm very, very biased towards thinking that at least for my parentage, it was a high-fat diet that we grew up on. And incidentally, of course, that was what my parents fed me. But then I went to medical school and became clever and changed <laughs> this high-carb diet. And so I, I just I believe that humans are designed to eat high-fat diets and that we have very little capacity to eat a high-carbohydrate diet and particularly a highly refined-carbohydrate diet. And so I, that I'm very, very much in his camp. And I think that if you look... It was when the when we started eating more than forty percent carbohydrate. That's when the problems of obesity and diabetes really start. It seems to me you can hang on, not be healthy, please, but you can you don't be necessarily incredibly ill if you're eating thirty percent or less. But once you go above thirty percent, forty percent, and a global stage, that's when the obesity diabetes epidemic really strikes. So I'm very supportive of that, and I just want to make a point further to what Zach was saying. I'm rewriting law of running now and i'm going back to read with now because i'm interested in diet so when i read people's histories i see well what were they eating and right up to the end of the 1960s it was all high meat diets that's what people all the athletes were eating those diets there was no talk about high carbohydrate diets before the end of the 1960s so i'm just reading about alf shrub who was one of the greatest athletes of all time held world records from one mile to ten miles in in two, in 1900s, the first decade of the 1900s, his diet was is eating almost like what Sean's eating. He wasn't. There was no carb or there was essentially no carbohydrate there. And he warned against eating pastries and things and potatoes. He said, "Don't eat pastries and don't eat potato." And he would have eggs for breakfast and he would have his other meat for lunch and dinner. There was no talk about carbohydrates, but yet he was setting world records from the mile to ten miles. How is it possible if you have to have carbohydrates? 
Yeah, I mean that's fast. And, and again, there's 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 numerous examples of that. You know, I think if we if we go back into time, um, you know, bo- you know, boxers, you know, reportedly eating, you know, even even you know, drinking blood and eating raw meat, and you know, we 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 see we've seen that used as a sport. For, you know, some of the original Greek Olympians for a period of time were on all meat diets. You know, reportedly, obviously, we don't have. Re- you know, absolutely ironclad evidence to show that stuff. But I mean, we, 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 you know, we obviously have historical accounts of guys like the, you know, the Plains Indians and then the, uh, the Mongolians and the, the Gauchos and these people, and even the Inuit were considered to have incredibly robust work capacities, uh, you know, largely in the absence of any appreciable carbohydrate. And so I know personally from my experience, you know, just, just sort of really objectively looking at where I was, you know, on a diet when I was eating more carbohydrates to where I am, where I'm eating much more red meat, it's been a notable improvement. And it's not like I, I've been, you know, someone that's been naive to training. I've been training for nearly 40 years. And, you know, when you yeah. see a an 8% increase in power output just based on diet, that's truly significant. And so I think there's, you know, there's something more there. You know, uh, I, I'm not. I know you're 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 a rugby fan, and I know obviously South Africa is is one of the world powers in rugby. But you know we've got a fellow uh, on the New Zealand All Blacks right now, Owen yeah. Franks, who is uh, who's yeah. adopting yeah. the diet, and you know, you know he's eating just basically all meat, and I mean he's performing at the absolute highest level in a sport that has tremendous amounts of gly- glycolytic activity. It's you know it's a you know it's a you know. A, you know, a fairly long period of time, which people say you can't do. And he, you know, when he told me he went on it back in December, he said, I'm getting bigger, I'm getting stronger, I'm getting leaner, and my performance is, is, is actually better. And so it's it's just fascinating. You know, we've got other examples of other players in that sport, you know, uh, you know, on the Australian team that, you know, that, that are just eating low carb. So I think it's changing the, the people that are adopting Absolutely. this. Yeah, David Pocock is the Australian who I convert. Well, he converted, he read Real Meal Revolution and then converted. And there's a whole funny story about him because he 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 stole the the World Cup from South Africa, in my opinion, because he was playing in the 2011 quarterfinals against South Africa, and the the referee was so poor and made 46 errors, and all 45 of them favoured Pocock. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the game, I said, if I ever see Pocock, I'll I'll put a gun to his head. And anyway, eventually, he on Twitter, he said, you must follow Tim Noakes. And so I tweeted back and I said, David, I forgive you everything. <laughs> and then we entered in a long conversation and he said that he had converted. And he's got one of the most unbelievable bodies I've ever seen. It is just, he is absolutely perfect. And he said he lost two kilograms of fat and put on one kilogram of muscle. And his performance went up. Yeah, so... And I'm helping another nation's team and who's trying to be the best in the world. And they're not from the south of the south. It's not Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And they have definitely bought into a reduced carbohydrate intake. So they've also seen the benefits of increasing the fat consumption of the athletes. Yeah, we had... uh... You know, we had Professor Stuart Phillips on the other day, and you know, as, as you probably know, he's one of the sort of top researchers around protein metabolism and muscle building. And he was talking about that they are starting to look at 
some of the effects of some of the fatty acids have on on muscle building. You know, particularly omega three yeah. just published a paper on that, and so it's still still fairly inconclusive. But there is an effect there, and so you know, there's more to this picture. Well, as, as a, you know, this is a thing. Anybody that's in science for a while understands they don't know very much. You know, ultimately, <laughs> and when we hear that. You know, we hear people saying the science is settled and this is what science says. That just means you're not a scientist, you know, basically in yeah, my mind. Yeah. So I must tell you that uh, I, I started doing CrossFit now um, about eight months ago and I put on five kilograms of muscle and I'm 69 years old. And my goal is to do a, is to be able to walk on my hands. That's that's the goal. And that might take a year or two. But when I can do that, that's going to be my test of fitness. And I will say, okay, how fit are you? Can you walk on your hands? Can you do a handstand and walk? Because that's that to me is is one of the most difficult things you can possibly do. And you've got to be strong in your upper body, which which of course as a runner I never was. And it's it's been wonderful getting increased upper body strength. Yeah, I mean it's you know for so long, and you would have grown up in this. You know the emphasis has always been on cardiorespiratory fitness, VO2 max, you know, you know long distance running, aerobic type stuff. But now we're starting to see the truly uh, health, in, you know, giving quality of having and preserving and maintaining lean muscle mass. And I think that is a huge part of the equation. It's nice to see you doing that. I've been. You know, I've been saying that for many years that we have to yeah. preserve lean muscle mass. I mean, not only from metabolic, you know, I mean, it's, I guess it's questionable how much of a metabolic advantage. There's some papers out there that, re, that, that may may dispute that, but just from a general function standpoint, you know, it's 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 so important to do. Absolutely, and I think my point I was making was that at 69, on a zero or almost zero carbohydrate diet, I was able to build muscle. So, you know, what's the mechanism on a high fat moderate protein diet i was able to build muscle at 69 so tell me you need carbs to do it nonsense well i mean it's the same we, we got in that with, with with professor phillips and he basically said the same thing you know uh there's muscle is built from protein and you know carbohydrate insulin is permissive it's not a requirement uh you know i think that's what the the newest sort of research shows and so th- this thought that you have to go work out and then chase it with with a dose of carbohydrates to ensure uh, you know, anabolism is, is largely a myth. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, again, how would any Inuit kid have ever put on any muscle in its life? I mean, they, they would have never grown, you know, right? You know, it's yeah. just like, of course you can build muscle, you know, in the absence of carbohydrate. It's just, you know, basic observation, which I think people, you know, again, it's sometimes common sense and basic observation is, is, is totally ignored when there's so many obvious examples out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the one other question along that line that I kind of had uh, for you too, Professor Noakes, was uh, one thing I noticed is, you know, I've been doing um, kind of a high-fat keto-type protocol for almost seven years. And, you know, since, uh, you know, I think you probably hear this from a lot of folks too, when they start out, they'll get into, you know, they'll get the program in place, they'll follow kind of the the quote unquote keto protocol where they're keeping their carbohydrates at 50 grams or below. Uh, and they'll feel great, uh, once they kind of get past that transition phase. And if they're like an endurance athletes, uh, they'll, they'll notice kind of that loss of that last gear as they get into kind of some of the more specific training or that, uh, uh, higher volume with some intensity type of an approach. And, um, and, you know, I, I noticed the same thing as well when I kind of first started doing it too. And, 
you know, what I did is I started trying to look at it a little differently and look at it as an energy expenditure as opposed to like, you know, amount of grams per day. And what I noticed is as I got into like, when I moved from kind of the early phases of training where I'm doing a lot of just like pure aerobic base building type stuff and then moved into some of the like shorter interval type things, uh, my heart rate at a given pace would go up quite a bit while, mm. if, I, if I kept myself in that kind of clinical ketogenic time frame, or not time frame, but uh, you know, protocol of like 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrates. Uh, and then when I, if I would bump it up a little bit, I would notice that heart rate at that pace come right back down. And so I kind of started developing what I would call like a periodized, uh, high fat approach where fat is always the primary macronutrient in my, in my nutrition plan. But when I'm hitting some of those peak weeks where, you know, I might be working out upwards of 20 hours a week, I'll let the carbs drift up, drift up a little bit, but never at the expense of fat being the primary macronutrient. And then I'm always really, really good about doing like a deload week for a reduction in volume and intensity and in training just to let the body kind of catch up. But then during that deload week, I also kind of look at it from two lenses. And the second lens is the nutrition part. And that during that week, I'll drop my carbs way back low again. Um, so like when you, when you back out about a year and look at kind of my training cycles, when I'm going from you know some weeks, which are almost entirely rest after like a big A race, and then some weeks that are upwards to 20 hours worth of running, strength work, mobility stuff, uh, I probably average around 10% carbohydrate throughout the course of the year. Uh, is that kind of like what you're seeing with a lot of athletes who are, uh, you know, training at a very, very high level as opposed to kind of like, you know, a weekend warrior scenario where they might be getting out to work out a few times a week and then doing like a long run on the weekends or something like that? Yeah, I would think that the athletes who've, who've complained to me that they've lost their top gear, they've, they're doing exactly what you're doing. And it seems to me that that's the way to go. I think of David Pocock, and he will take 125 to 200 grams of carbs on the Friday before a Saturday test match, where he's going to play full out for 80 minutes, flat out. So that's what he would do. But the rest, he's, for the rest five days of the week, he's very, very low carbs. So it seems to me that you do, that some athletes at high intensity do need to increase their carbohydrate intake. But I do know of other athletes who perhaps are not in, in doing sprint, more like sprint activities, where they actually don't complain that they've lost their top gear and they don't need extra carbohydrates to, to be competitive. Uh, Cameron Vandenberg, 100-meter world record holder in swimming, he, he doesn't increase his carbs and he's, he's ketogenic all the time. And I think it's probably because he's got enough glycogen to swim the 100 meters. He doesn't need to to load up on carbs. And that would be the difference between, between him and, and between yourself. Yeah. That's, that's always been what I've observed too. Like when you, I like endurance tends to, seems to be this kind of gray area where like, uh, you get someone like, like Sean who, uh, you know, he's doing very intense stuff. Like almost everything he does is intense and he's not ingesting any concentrated carbohydrate sources. Uh, but he's also, has a larger block of time between workouts than what you would see in a traditional um, endurance athlete program where, you know, you're seeing these marathon runners who are doing two a days. And, you know, so the, the time window between workouts is much shorter. 
Uh, so I think I think there's maybe something there with that, you know, that amount of recovery between efforts that yeah. when you go high enough intensity, you just need more time between like you're not going to go out and do, you know, an hour of intensity uh, at like a that would be like, you know, a program for like a 100 meter dash or a 100 meter swim or something like Sean's doing where it's like 60 second rowing efforts and things like that. You know, the, the beauty of that type of workout style is you you get a 23 hour break between your efforts. And I think yeah, then you yeah. have that opportunity for glyco glyconeogenesis and, you know, other processes to kind of restore those glycogen levels. And you're just not diving into them as deeply either. Um, so yeah, it's always interesting. And, uh, I think, uh, you know, with the, the ketogenic diet kind of revamped up, I think fast enough where, we kind of just took the, pro, the the template from what would be prescribed for uh, its original purposes for like epilepsy, like type two diabetes, and uh, things like that, and kind of plopped it down onto the endurance athlete. When I think in reality you can still be in ketosis most of the time and just be eating more carbohydrates due to your your energy demand variance. Yeah. And you know the other thing I've also noticed. Uh, as I've kind of gotten further, further into this type of program too, is you know, when I first started doing it, you know, if I had like a day where I would eat, uh, you know, a hundred, maybe 150 grams of carbohydrate, uh, if I was, was testing ketones, it would take me, you know, a day or two maybe to get back into what would be considered, uh, ketosis. But now after mm -hmm. doing it for as long as I have, I can, I can, I can go higher than that even. I can have days where I'm upwards to 200 grams of carbohydrates. And then the next day I'll go out for a workout. Like it'll, usually the only time I'm getting up to 200 grams is if the next day I have a workout where I'm going to be uh, doing some type of intensity and it's going to be two, three hours in duration mm. in terms of total work as well. Uh, but I get back from that morning workout. If I test my ketones, I'm already back in ketosis. And, you know, it's yeah. less yeah. than 12 hours from that kind of, that for me carb bolus <laughs> so <laughs> i think the efficiency improves as well as you get kind of further adapted to it you're able to kind of move in and out of ketosis a lot quicker and mm. i think that type of metabolic flexibility is kind of the, the the gold standard uh in terms of where you want to eventually be and uh, i think unfortunately sometimes people look at it and say i don't have the patience to spend seven years adapting but <laughs> who, who knows you know i'll, I'll be fascinated when we get to a point where the this approach has been around long enough where we have like a 28 year old athlete who, who has been on a, a higher fat approach their entire life versus someone like myself who was very much high yeah. carbohydrate through age 24 25 before finally kind of uh transitioning over i guess yeah you know it's really interesting but uh, one of my students who's doing studies on high-fat diets for reversal of diabetes, he suddenly realized that no one has ever studied the response to a, high a higher-carbohydrate meal in people who are fat-adapted. Because all our data comes from high-carbohydrate-adapted people. You give them a high-carbohydrate diet. And what he found is the metabolism is totally different, that if you're fat-adapted, you simply store all the carbohydrate, whereas if you are carbohydrate-adapted, and you take in more carbohydrate, you've got to get rid of it as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So you've got to shunt it into your muscles and burn it, oxidize it, or store it as fat. And your RQ shoots up and your insulin shoots up. Didn't see that on fat-adapted athletes. They just store it. It seems to me they just store it as glycogen. And that's, that it will help explain your response. 
that the extra carbohydrate, that 200 grams, is going to muscle to be stored. What we did find also when we compared high-fat athletes to high-carbohydrate athletes was that the high-carbohydrate diet guys also burn a lot of carbohydrate at rest. So the carbohydrate diet isn't just being used when they're exercising. It's also spilling over to when they're resting. But when you're a high-fat diet athlete, you burn quite a lot of carbohydrate during exercise, but when you're resting, you don't burn carbohydrates. So you only need a little bit of extra carbs for to use during the exercise, and that can be a couple of hundred grams a day. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, and, and one of the problems with that I see with some of the, uh, you know, the way exercise physiology done regarding athletes is, you know, we sort of, uh, one, we don't adapt them long enough. Often's the case, you know, they, we take these people that are on a habitual six meal a day high carb diet, and then we put them on a ketogenic diet, and and, and watch them transition for three weeks, and say their performance went down. But I think that you know, if we look at performance over the long haul, you know, over over months and years, you know, you look at what goes into performance, and some of that has to do with how beat up do you get. So if you're burning carbohydrates 24 hours a day, or you know, or at least a higher percentage. Are you beating yourself up metabolically? Is there a more oxidative stress, more oxidative damage? You know, what happens with mood? What happens with, you know, all these different mm-hmm. things, injury potential? I think all those things go into performance ultimately. So when you're looking at someone over, over the length of a career, you have to say what makes you healthy is going to ultimately result in performance. And some people get very short-sighted and they say, well, if I get put you on an exercise cycle for, you know, 30 minutes, you're going to have, you know, a 5% higher output if we put you on a high-carb diet in this one test in the short term. But that really under minds the, the the long term because most people don't become olympic champions in a few weeks exactly. i mean they're, they're they're spending 10 years 20 years you know 15 years of training before they ever even get close to that and so that's fascinating but jack just to just to give you an anecdote because i know you've got this sort of theory about repeated glycogen activity so when i when i was 50 last year i set to break out the the one minute world record on the concept two and so i went down there and the world record was 406 meters uh, for the 50 plus class uh, and I went down there and I broke it. I broke it at 410, but I was kind of annoyed because I thought I could go faster. And so I was kind of pissed off. And so I went upstairs, you know, I took a cold shower, ate a steak. I waited three or four hours. I went back down there and then I went 414 meters and I broke it by another four, <laughs> four, four meters. So, I mean, I was able to put out these repeated, you know, max effort, effort things on, you know, maybe, maybe the, maybe the, uh, the steak, you know, because there is some glucose that's released from steak and stuff like that, but but it was without carbohydrate, and so I think that's still still not conclusively proven. You know, I think we're still in the in the infant days on that. Professor Nooks, let me just go. Um, there is a lot of resistance to this, you know, and, and not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I think there's a lot of business interest to go with this. What do you think are the biggest impediments? What are what are people willing to do? And I know you're you've, you've experienced this firsthand to to sort of not let this sort of not let us change status quo. And and then finally, what are you? I mean, now that you've gotten you've gotten through this crazy, stupid trial stuff, and and, and what's going on in your life now? Where are you headed? What's what can we expect to see out of Tim Noakes over the coming years? Okay, we'll start with the second question. So now, uh, I'm rewriting Law of Running because the first chapter was all about how you must eat carbs to perform. So <laughs> I got to get rid of that, and so I'll be replacing that first chapter or the first four chapters with the physiology of the brain and how exercise performance is regulated in the brain. And for that, I'm going to have to do a lot of reading. But anyway, that's what I'm going to do. And I've started rewriting by working on the training sections because I've discovered, I've uncovered some more stuff, which although it's a very, very complete chapter, 
I've discovered Zatopek. Uh, of course, our, Zatopek was in the chapter, but no one had actually described exactly how Zatopek trained. And then I found the uh, Gordon Pirie's book, and he described, because Gordon Pirie was the English runner who decided to follow what Zatopek had done, and he absolutely describes exactly how he trained on the Zatopek model. And I've never be before seen that. And so that's that's a fabulous linkage. And so, so I'm re redoing the whole training. And, and a lot of people complained that law of running was all about marathon running and there wasn't enough about middle distance running. So I'm going to have to look into the training sections there. So that's going to be a project for three or four years. It's going to be a complete rewrite and a, a new book. And it will bring up to date everything that I know about, about running and the biology of running. Because I haven't written it for 15 years and a lot has happened in the interim. But I myself have spent the last 10 years studying nutrition. So I've got to get back and studying the physiology of running. So that's the one project. The second project is I've, I've decided I have to write a very short book on, on the rules of nutrition because law of nutrition is, in my view, a really good book. It explains exactly what the problems are and why we got it all wrong. But people read it and they still don't get it. <laughs> so they still come back and say, oh, you know, I could maybe with fat still going to kill me, etc. So I wanted, I'm going to write a very short, concise book saying these are the errors. These are why we made the errors. This is the evidence why they are errors and what we can do about it. And I want the book that you can get on the airplane in Los Angeles. And by the time you reach New York, you read the whole book and your, your view has changed completely. So I'm just going to stop there because it's going to run out. It's about five minutes. So let me just rephone you. Okay. There we go. So can you hear me? Yep. Okay. So that's those are the two projects. And the third project is I continue to raise money for our, my small research group. We're not mine anymore, but... We have a foundation, the Noakes Foundation, and we've we've raised about a, a million dollars overseas from some wonderful people in the U.S. who don't want to be mentioned, but they're they're real stalwarts of of many of the low carb movement, and we're studying reversal of type two diabetes, and so all my research career we built up the way to study carbohydrate and fat metabolism in humans, particularly during exercise. So we've got this incredible capacity and knowledge and wisdom and now we want to apply that to people with diabetes and see what happens as they reverse their diabetes they put their diabetes in remission what's the biology of the change that happens that allows people to stop taking their medications and stop taking insulin as they so-called reverse their type 2 diabetes so that's a huge project we've got we we want to have about 20 patients who reverse their diabetes and study them over two or three years and see what happens and how we can explain it. The other research that we're doing, also a randomized controlled trial, in, is in the very poorest communities of South Africa. We've had an intervention called the Eat Better South Africa campaign, where we've shown that you can, on $3 a day, you can eat healthy foods. And encouraging people to eat those foods improves their health dramatically. And for example, you can reverse hypertension within a few weeks if you get the sugar and the carbohydrates out of diets of people who only eat those foods. And it may be that we're actually giving them fat and that's what's curing them, or it may be the removal of the, the sugar and the carbohydrates. But 
it's remarkable how you can reverse the ill health of people within weeks when you get them off the sugar and the, the high carbohydrate diets. And, and that's to counter one of the criticisms of people saying that this diet is too expensive and therefore the poor people can't eat it. That's nonsense. We, the poor people can eat a, a very healthy diet, provided you understand which foods are healthy and, and, and make sure that they're, they're not the expensive foods. So those are some of the, 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 the things that I'll be doing in the next few years. Um, I am retired now, uh, but the fact that we won the case has been very helpful. I'm trying to rebuild, or the university is trying to rebuild the relationship with myself because, unfortunately, there were a pu couple of people in the university who, who acted atrociously towards me and were part of this, of the attempt to completely humiliate me publicly. And I think the university has realized that that it shouldn't have allowed that to happen. And so I'd like, I'd like the university to understand what, what happens when you're mobbed, and that's what happened to you, Sean, and that's what happened to me. We were mobbed, and that's, that's what can cause suicides, as you rightly said. And it's, universities are meant to be caring institutions, and particularly the medical faculty is meant to be caring institutions. Well, there was anything but caring in the way I was treated and the way you were treated. And we need to get that message across that the way I was treated is totally unacceptable and must never happen to anyone again. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, I, uh, we talked about it at the beginning, but and I, and I agree, obviously. But let me just, you know, we've got this, uh, like I said, we've got this huge, you know, for lack of a better term, dogma that's been out there for, you know, you can go back to Ansel Keys or even be, even before that, that we've got this, 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 People that's careers depend on there, there's big business that, that makes money on this, and so it's a huge uphill battle to try to reverse some of this stuff. And I think that uh, you know we've got this. Well, one of the things because you talk about you know sugar particularly, or or you know, and I, I think there's been some some interesting information coming out about the the problems with sort of these these sort of seed oils particularly. You know, we had a guy named Tucker Goodrich on the show, and we're talking about the problem that that's that's involved with that. And I think that's often not talked about very much. But the other thing is, you know, we have all these sort of people that are just staunchly advocates of this, you know, diet heart hypothesis and the problem that elevated cholesterol is going to lead to heart disease. And then sometimes when people go on high carb or sorry, low carb, high fat diets, that their cholesterol goes up. But that population, to my knowledge, has really never been studied long term, meaning to say that are there a subset of people where higher cholesterol is not a problem? And I think that's slowly being sort of looked at. And, you know, we're seeing these people that the only, you know, metabolically, they seem to be completely healthy. I mean, they're, you know, their, their, their body composition is favorable. They have good blood pressure. They don't have any inflammation. Uh, they have, uh, you know, excellent just clinical function overall, but they've got this one, you know, sort of outlier lab value of cholesterol. And I, and I think, you know, there's people out there that, that still don't seem to realize that that is, that is, uh, you know, very much dependent upon the rest of the system. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, the first problem I caused myself was to say that statins aren't a very effective drug. And that caused the, the cardiologists in Af South Africa to attack me and remorselessly. And they sort of led the way because once they'd criticized me publicly, other people thought they could jump on the bandwagon. So, but things change. And a year ago, I was invited to speak to the 130 leading cardiologists in South Africa. And I was asked to speak on, you know, does cholesterol cause arterial disease? 
And the evidence is it clearly doesn't. I mean, it, the it's, it is so obvious that it's not the cholesterol, that it's something else. The evidence is so compelling. And I think you just have to look at familial hypercholesterolemia. And papers came out in the middle of last year and more recently this year showing that in familial hypercholesterolemia, it is insulin resistance that predicts whether or not the person is going to have a heart disease. And point one and point two, most people with familial hypercholesterolemia have a normal life expectancy or even slightly longer than normal. And in the pre-antibiotic era, familial hypercholesterolemia people outlived everyone else. And that's probably because cholesterol has got something to do with, with immune function and uh, it acts to, to repel infections and so on. But the most compelling story is the following, that there is a publication which came out about two months ago, which... For the first time, they took a group with familial hypercholesterolemia and they randomized them into a placebo control group. And the other group lowered their cholesterol 50% by a particular cholesterol lowering drug. Now, and then when I present the data, I say, so if your cholesterol's dropped by 50%, what should be the reduction in mortality or heart attack? So the audience who perhaps don't understand fully, well, at least 50%. So I said, yeah, well, it was 0.04%, 0.4 of a percent. That was the reduction in all events or cardiovascular events so if you take the people with the highest risk of heart disease with the highest cholesterol and you drop it by 50 percent and the only difference is 0.4 of a percent in reduction in major cardiovascular events then your model doesn't work it's wrong you've got to think again and i think what's going to kill that is that the fact that statins now are off off patent and they're so poor that there's no money in it anymore. So the cardiologists can't be bribed to oversell these products. And that's what's been happening for, for 30 or 40 years. The cardiologists have been encouraged to prescribe these drugs and by all sorts of methods and mechanisms to make sure that they were financially rewarded for prescribing statins. And, and that's what kept the industry going. But now there's no more money. So things are going to change quite rapidly. And the funniest thing was at the end of the, the talk, the person who'd organized the conference, who's one of the leading cardiologists in Southern Africa, called me aside and he said, you know, Tim, if only you would say that statins should be used for secondary prevention, we would promote the Banting diet for our patients. <laughs> the Banting, of course, the Banting is, the, is the low carbohydrate diet. So I said to him, but, but they don't work. So how can I promote them? <laughs> When I was in medical school, you know, it was 20-some years ago, you know, or, or residency or something like that, I just remember, you know, in the background, not because I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I was in orthopedics, so we don't really get much into prescribing statins, obviously, but I was always, the mantra that I was always hearing was, you know, there's so many people that have problems, we should, we need to put Lipitor in the water supply. I mean, yeah. this is what was being told to people 20 years ago. Now, why that was being told, was it just being said because, you know, we were being brainwashed to think it did cholesterol is so bad for us and it is something that we naturally produce and required for every cell in our body and our brain is you know significantly made of we need to get rid of this you know aggressively but that you know that that just permeates the the medical community and so it's 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 i mean it's it's really hard to to get that out of there yeah and and no one ever looks at the package inserts for lipitor where it says it has not been shown that lipitor prevents heart attacks that's what it says on the package insert for Lipitor, which is the most popular statin ever prescribed. I think it earned billions and billions and billions for, for Pfizer. And that's what it says. Never been shown to prevent heart disease. 
Yeah, I mean it's true. It's it's truly uh, ama- kind of amazing there. Um, what is uh, you know how is how how are we doing in South Africa right now? Because you guys are obviously uh, you know a relatively small country, you know, re- compared to where we are. I know I've seen people in Iceland that are adopting this this sort of low carb, even carnivorous diet, and they're a you know a significant amount of the population is starting to do this. And you know I think it's it's interesting that you you know you have these you know, the U.S. And, and other countries are so big that it's hard to make an impact. But I think, yeah. you know, yeah. what is the percentage of people doing banting in South Africa? Well, we, we don't really know. But what we do know is that there's a banting Facebook page in Cape Town, which has 1.4 million subscribers. And they increase by about 2,000 a day. Now, that will tell you. And 80% are black South Africans. And that's what's really exciting that the majority population in this country has bought into the start. And I think that they might well be more easily persuaded about the value of the diet because they perhaps haven't been exposed to all the brainwashing that everyone else has been exposed to. And they just see their friends and colleagues losing weight and it works. I remember one of the great moments for me was I was drove to the airport a few months ago and and the boom wouldn't open at the park in park. So the guy came up and he, he said, he looked at me and he said, I know you. So I said, yes, I'm the banting doctor. And he immediately turned side on, he pulled his stomach and he said, look at me, prof. I've lost 10 <laughs> kilograms. <laughs> and he said, look at my belt. And the belt didn't fit anymore. And he said, it's amazing. And he said, every one of my friends has seen me lose this 10 kilograms. He said, how did you do it? And they all started doing it as well. So the, the, there's been a huge impact in this country. Of course, there's pushback. But the fact that I won my case has also legitimized the diet. And it's shown that the people who are standing up against me, they haven't been able to come up with the evidence that we were wrong. So whatever people may think about me as an individual or what I was saying or my professional conduct, they say, well, okay, you know, what he said about the diet can't be wrong. It must be right. So the diet's safe. So we can try the diet. And I think ultimately, Nina Teichold, I was speaking to her a few nights ago, and she said, you know, all we want to do is to have it placed on record that the low-carbohydrate diet is very effective in the management of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. It is not dangerous. We're not saying it's the final diet that we must all follow. We're just saying give it a chance. In other words, when a patient comes, you say, okay, here's the traditional diet. Here's the low-carb, high-fat diet, which may help you if you've got insulin resistance. Why don't you try it? Or you can choose whichever you try. Because as she said, the more people who try the diet and find it works, then it's going to become the most popular diet. That I have no question in my mind that this diet is so effective in taking away hunger and helping you lose weight effortlessly that it will become the dominant diet but it can't be as long as it's got the stigma that it's dangerous once we take the stigma of danger out and say just try it and see what happens and that's really going to be when it'll take off and i know that she is working behind the scenes to have the dietary guidelines for 2020 changed in the u.s and she's a very clever woman and I, i wouldn't bet against her my bet is that that she by her own strength of character and personality is going to change the dietary guidelines. She's going to make sure that this is the option, that in future the low-carb diet will be said this is the safe diet, 
which can be offered as an option for people with obesity or type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance. Well, I mean, it arguably it was it was the most popular diet for the planet for, you know, a couple million years. So, you know, it's kind of kind of kind of interesting with that. But yeah, we had Nina on the show a couple of weeks ago via her nutrition coalition, so that's that's where she's kind of kind of doing that stuff. Hey folks, Human Performance Outlier Podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on ButcherBox as one of our sponsors. Uh, with ButcherBox, you can get some high-quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, with that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox? Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox, you know, for quite a while now. I've, I've run through several of their, their uh, different boxes. And, you know, for me, and, and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been, uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the, the quality of the meat's been very good. Uh, for you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia. Uh, and it has a very, uh, I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the grass uh, finished meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey. Uh, and I don't find that to be the case uh, with with the butcher box product, and probably because of the length of time the animal spent on grass, and they get a little bit more marbling in there, and I think that helps. And so, I've had a, uh, a very good experience with them, and I highly recommend them. All right, folks, head over to butcherbox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you, and back to the show. The the optimism, I guess, is when you at least my like litmus test, and I think. Uh, you probably see this in South Africa a lot now, probably more so in South Africa now, is like you go to the grocery store and it's not like an almost, you're, you're not bending over backwards to kind of figure out like uh, what, what like what to get that's going to that's gonna kind of fit in this, like a Bantu style diet or a, a keto or a high fat style diet. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll go walk through the grocery store now and I'll, it's still it's still what I would describe as in, in the U S where if you'd went in there with like a blindfold on and just started grabbing one or two things from each aisle, you're going to walk out with a high carbohydrate diet, uh, worth of like groceries. Um, but it's not as bad as it was maybe a, a decade ago. So you can kind of see the market shifting a little bit and starting to kind of, uh, you know, provide some stuff for folks who are, who are looking to do this type of stuff. Is that kind of uh, similar in South Africa? Are you seeing? I know when I was there in 2015, I saw a lot of like restaurants that were very much kind of like banting based, where you'd actually probably have a hard time going in there with a vegetarian mindset, opposed as opposed to a you know a, a carnivorous mindset. Are the grocery stores kind of modifying in that regard too, where it's a lot easier to kind of go in there and say? You know, this is my Banting grocery list. I can I can find a lot of different options. Yeah, definitely. In fact, there is a whole line of Banting products that is sold at one of the one of the major shops. So there's been a huge change, and you can't buy skim milk anymore. One of the major producers of skim milk just stopped it, so that you can only get three or four percent milk now, full cream milk. So that that's another marker. And butter, the price of butter just shot through the roof. That's because there's been a butter shortage. 
And but no, there absolutely has been a major change, and uh, I, it's difficult to have the markers exactly. I mean, we don't know what proportion of the population has changed. But if you think back three years ago, no one knew what the low carbohydrate diet was in South Africa. They had no clue. They didn't know what the word banting meant. And now it's it's in common parlance. In fact, it's even gone into the Afrikaans dictionary. The word banting is mm-hmm. is used to indicate this diet. So there has been a huge change. And I think the the other point that perhaps this is where I take the greatest hope is that the medical students are, although they might be told that this is a dangerous diet, they said, no, but I've been on social media. I've seen the evidence. It's actually not. And and that's going to be a big change. They no longer have to just listen to what the professors say, that they can see for themselves. And And of course, a lot of their parents have changed and they've seen the parent reversing type 2 diabetes and obesity. So when they go to a lecture and a dietitian tells them that banting diet's dangerous, going to kill you, they said, oh, hold on, you know, I've seen it in myself or in my family, and that's nonsensical. So I think that we've, in a sense, we've gone past a number of tipping points, and I can only see it accelerating in the future. I have, you know, Professor Noakes, I have just one comment, and, and it's kind of the question. It was a question I meant to ask when I, when, I, when I couldn't figure out to ask, but I thought about it. You know, we have... Um, you know, certainly if you're saying 80% of the, the, you know, the black South Africans are starting to adapt, but that's a huge population, right. obviously. And so, so when you start getting into numbers, adopting at that high of, a, of adherence rate, then you have to start talking about sustainability. And one of the arguments that's being made is we cannot sustain the world on a high fat diet, you know, particularly if it comes from animal products because of all the environmental potential issues that, that are going on. That. And in fact, in the United States and, and other places, you know, we're seeing you know, moves to legislate taxation of these products to ban them from, you know, certain institutions. There's companies that came up with policies saying we will not pay for you to eat this way. What are your thoughts on that uh, with regard to sustainability? And, and then the attempts to legislate us to eat, you know, basically go to a, you know, basically a high carb plant based diet. Yeah, it worries me because I don't think people are do. They're all looking at it from the from their own bias. So they're coming with a bias and then they're presenting all the evidence that supports that bias. And industry is making sure that the bias is towards a plant-based diet. So that that's it worries me and the World Health Organization is behind it and I think people like Bill Gates are behind it and uh, Richard Branson are behind it. So it's a massive movement and it, it worries me because no one's factoring in the cost on human health of that diet. So what are we doing about the 400 million people with diabetes who wouldn't have had the diabetes if they hadn't eaten a plant-based diet? How are we factoring the cost that they impose on the environment? And until we match up and look for the costs of the ill health caused by this diet, we're not getting the full picture. I agree that it's very difficult to, to so it's difficult to feed all the people on this planet. It's probably not possible to do it either by a carnivorous diet or a plant-based diet. And we're heading for a disaster if we go just plant-based diets because the land is going to eventually, the soil is going to be so barren that we're not going to be able to grow anything. So either way, we're in trouble and we need a solution. And I don't think that people are thinking carefully enough about they're just assuming that's the safe one, and I don't see that it is. 
Yeah, one of the one of the arguments, you know, people they tell me the truth will eventually prevail, and um, you know, you, you know, I, I'm just not so naive to believe that. You know, I think what happens is, whoever has the loudest microphone, whoever yells the most, whoever puts out their data the most, who's ever the most effective at controlling the message, kind of controls the future. And so I've been very sort of vocal in saying, look, we've we've got to get that there as a community and really step up our game because we're being herded and directed in this one particular direction, which I think is, in my view, the wrong direction. Now, you know, we've got some people coming up that are, that are going to talk about climate and the environment and you know, sustainability on the podcast that, you know, because a lot of the stuff we're seeing quoted and it's taken by the general pop, you know, it's, it's being promoted by, you know, some people that have obvious agendas that they promote environmental statistics that, you know, people just take that on face value and they don't question that. And I think that's something that we have to sit out there and get people that actually understand that, no, it's these things are based on worst case scenario. There's better ways to do this. You know, we, we can we can mitigate a lot of that. We can probably even make it a net positive. And so I think the problem is, you know, there's too many people that are passive out there. And, you know, you know, I, I just I missed sort of sort of jokingly imagining this dystopian future and 20, 30 years from now when, you know, you're sitting there and you, you can't, you can't get nourishing food because you've been sort of directed down this path where we're all eating this sort of soy grain based vitamin fortified, you know, nutrient mm-hmm. product that, that, that the processed food industry is, is encouraging us to eat and the, the government has bought off on. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it's a major challenge and, Fortunately, I'm not going to be around when that happens. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, but I mean, you have children, you have children and grandchildren, and, and those folks who are going to be around. And so I, I look at it for that. You know, it's it's you know, I'm just trying to. You know, probably I won't either. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm 50 something now, and I, you know, but I'm I'm worried 40, 50 years from now, when my kids are having kids and have grandkids that they're going to be dealing with this stuff. No, I agree. We. I've kind of focused on getting the dietary guidelines changed, but you're quite right. This is a much bigger issue. Well, Professor, any any other last bit of stuff you want to talk about? I think we've kept you so long, and uh, it's been you've been gracious with your time. And I, I, hopefully, one day I'll get to meet you in person, maybe in South Africa, or if you ever travel travel abroad. Um, you know, I want to get back up on Table Mountain. I remember when I climbed it when I was there. I remember for some reason, you know, I hiked up it. You know, there's a cable car you can take up there, but I hiked up it. I remember there was a ledge you had to walk across. It was not very wide. And I remember because, you know, Table Mountain is like, it's like 3,000 foot drop. And I remember it was pretty darn scary walking across that. Do you know the area where I'm talking about? I do know the area exactly that you mean. No, it's, it's a dangerous mountain because people get lost on it every every year and, and fall off it. And it's going to yeah. happen. So well, that 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 because I was scared. I was like, you know, I remember it was only like a three foot wide ledge, and you had to walk, and you know, right on the other side of that three foot ledge was a huge drop. And so I guess it's it's maybe justified knowing that people do actually fall. Yeah. Well, listen, I'd like to thank both of you for this opportunity, but also for the inspiration that you both bring to me, because we, you know, how do you know if you're right or wrong? Well, you never know absolutely certain, but but the more people of quality. Who come along and say this they agree with you that helps and and you two really high quality individuals who've achieved so much in your lives it's a it's a privilege to be associated with you and have been able to speak to you at length and i just you know we've just got to keep fighting and zach you just got to keep running faster and further and longer and sean you just got to keep rowing faster and longer <laughs> and eating more 
eating more fat and protein and proving that autoimmune disease is due to plants, which I hope you do and hope someone wins a Nobel Prize for proving that because, you know, watching your evidence and other people's evidence, I'm beginning to believe that that plant-based diets are strongly linked to autoimmune disease. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's some preliminary evidence that's coming out there. We'll see what happens in the long term and trying to try to try to push towards getting some more formalized stuff. But, you know, it's it's there's nobody wants to necessarily fund that right now. Hopefully that'll, that'll change in the near future as we just, you know, do whatever we can to, to get the message out there. So thank you both. Fantastic evening and lovely to chat to you both. Wonderful, professors. Well, I think Zach will try to get this out today for Patreon folks, and it'll be up probably in a couple of weeks, you know, for, for general consumption. And then uh, we'll let you know when it's there. And if you'd be kind enough to let your listeners know, because I think it's great, just great information. And I, and I know I'm glad we got to talk a little bit outside of what you're normally talking about these last years, because, again, that's that's exciting for our you know listeners that are interested in, in athletic performance as well. Fantastic. Thank you both again, and I hope to see you in the flesh sometime soon. Wonderful, Professor Noakes. Thanks. Thank you so much. so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on, and I know I speak for both of us. We've been following your work and we will continue to. So uh, anytime you want to come on and uh, share anything new, just let us know. Thank you very much. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Sean. Okay, bye-bye, bye-bye Professor Noakes. Bye. Hey everyone, Sean and I are excited to announce that Human Performance Outliers Podcast has partnered with Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high quality grocery shopping easy. By going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping, you not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee and savings, Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Hey folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at ZBitter, that's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R, and you can find Sean at SBakerMD, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at ZachBitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R, and for Sean, it's at SeanBaker1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.